0: Well, good morning. Try again. Uh, Good morning, everybody. It's great to be in the house of the Lord together and to worship together in spirit and in truth. I I just love to worship God and to do it corporately. Um, We're going to be looking again at the Lord's Prayer, one phrase, but before we sort of uh, dig in, I want to just again put before us to pray for the Smithwick family and uh, pray for the Davis family. Family. It's uh, unique uh, in the connections there because Nate Davis, uh, our headmaster and associate pastor here at the church, it is his brother in law who, um, uh, who died and has been sort of lost in the Kenai River. And that tragedy is, is one where we want to pray for Nate specifically as he sort of is a shepherd on hand to shepherd uh, his sister, Jenny, who lost her husband, Rob, and then their five kids. Um, They're teenage kids. Um, all the way up through young adulthood. So please be in prayer for the Smithwicks and the Davis family and for all around. I think some of us are there at, um, or headed that way to the memorial service at the Cook Inlet Academy. It begins at 3 p.m. today. So also be in prayer for the families of the airmen who were lost um, last week, last Wednesday in the C-17 crash. Um, I don't know um, where each of them Uh, were with the Lord. um, But, you know, it's a great opportunity as we've kind of prayed all through the service to be grateful for our armed services and for those who put their lives at risk for us and uh, an opportunity to pray that the gospel would be preeminent and that people would be saved and drawn to um, Christ in this time. I believe there's a memorial service tomorrow. At Elmendorf. And so um, anyway, be in prayer that way. Also uh, for our youth, pray for them. There is an offering that's uh, coming up, a conference called Fusion. It's um, kind of a uh, sort of a hip thing in terms of the promo video. Uh, there are a lot of youth pastors and youth workers and speakers who are coming. And it, it's held at uh, Anchorage Baptist Temple each year, I believe. And uh, it's on the dates of the 11th through the 14th of this month. It's now August uh, officially. And um, just be in prayer for the youth that are attending and encourage your youth to go. It's, it's great to sort of be recharged and reminded of um, following Christ, following hard after him in our culture around us. But that's we've got information on the tables out in the foyer for that. Uh, well, now let's turn. Let's stand up and turn around and greet a few people and say hi in the Lord. Um, kind of shake awake one more time and, and tell everybody hello. All right, let's uh, return to our seats and grab our Bibles and let's get to work. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, we're looking again at the Lord's Prayer and specifically at verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're looking there this morning, Matthew 6, this is a continuation of our study on uh, the Lord's Prayer and in macro, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, my big title uh, for this section is Undefiled Orthoproxy, and since my mother-in-law came to town for a couple weeks, and she said, what in the world is undefiled orthopraxy?" And you didn't explain it last time, so she kind of set me straight so I figured I'd respond and sort of just, again, tell you why we have this sort of uh, unorthodox title. Uh, it, it's basically responding to James chapter 1, verse 27, which says that it is pure and undefiled religion to visit orphans and widows. Uh, we do live out our religion, and orthopraxy is practicing your religion, and we want to do it in an undefiled way. We want to be pure of heart when we give, we want to be pure of heart when we pray, and we want to be pure in heart as we fast and pray. And, and the Lord is sort of putting his searchlight on our hearts in these verses, verses 1 through 18, call, causing us and calling us to examine ourselves and to think about why we do what we do. And when we pray, do we pray the way Jesus wants us to pray? And in the Lord's Prayer here, we have six petitions, six things that we should be asking for regularly. And we're looking at number three, the third one. And it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want God's sovereign will to be done as it is in heaven, on earth, in your life, and in your world around you? If you do, let me just say this up front. You are rebelling against all of what the culture tells you to want. The culture wants you to go this way and you are swimming upstream when you pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in essence, you're praying for God's holiness, his hallowed name, and his kingdom to come down. It's rebellion, but it's good rebellion. You know, some people look at a verse like this and they sort of fall asleep. They say, okay, you know, your will be done. God, you're sovereign, and so now I'm going to go to sleep. God, you're, you're completely in control, so I'm going to take an attitude that will put me into a spiritual coma, and I'm just going to lay back and let you do what you're going to do. And that is the wrong way to look at this petition, this request. Instead, it should energize us, because taking the right way, when you pray this prayer, your will be done, you are praying something that is very, very dangerous. Martin Luther called this a dangerous prayer. It's basically like saying, Lord, show me my sin today. That's that kind of prayer. Or, Lord, you know, I'm not sure if there's any pride in my life. Lord, will you reveal my pride to me today? And invariably, He does it, right? I've prayed that prayer. It's dangerous to do that because all of a sudden, whoops, you know, you're kind of stumbling around and dropping balls and there you are. And uh, this is that kind of prayer because basically what we're doing is we're saying, I'm willing to become vulnerable before your sovereign will. And whatever you want to do in my life and in my world and in my circumstances, your will be done today. It's dangerous. It makes us feel wobbly at times. Some people sort of, you know, don't like to pray for God's sovereign will to be done because they don't want to relinquish control in the moment. I think that's often why we don't pray as much as we should pray, because we're afraid of that vulnerability. I remember one time I was a student leader, I was a resident director back at the Master's College, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, this person woke me up, falling by my bedside, sobbing uncontrollably because he had just found out that his sister had been flung from a moving vehicle on an interstate and possibly was going to die. And I woke up and sort of rallied some students around him and we prayed for him. But then there was a student leader who gathered in earnest some other students and began to pray and he shut the door. And I heard him sort of through the door say, no more sovereign prayers. Let's get down to work. And I understand the sentiment. I mean, he was impassioned. He wanted to energize the group to really get after it and not sort of lay back and sort of uh, just say, God, you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. But that was a wrong headed statement for him to make because that student who was in crisis needed the sovereignty of God more in that moment than any other time in his life thus far. The sovereignty of God is a dangerous thing to pray for, and it makes us vulnerable, but it's also a haven of rest. It's a place where we can pillow our heads, and it was interesting to me to think about the student whose, whose sister was flung, and in that crisis, was later reintroduced to the college in a chapel, where everybody sort of applauded her and gave her a standing ovation, but she was forever sort of impaired and um, would have struggles. Um, You know, medically and physically. And that student in particular, that that young man who was the older brother, became a missionary. And he uh, is in Uzbekistan with his family serving the Lord. The other student who made that statement, no more sovereign prayers, later on, his sister actually was killed in an automobile crash and he's walked away from the Lord. It's important for us to understand that the sovereignty of God is our reality. It is what we know of as Christians to be true about God. God is in control of all of the details of life. And instead of knowing the sovereignty of God as something that we disdain or something that puts us to sleep, we should look at the sovereignty of God as something that energizes our prayers because we are willing to throw ourselves before God and his mercy, realizing his ways are higher than our ways, knowing God's will. You know, it reminds me of of how at points in our lives we become very vulnerable. Many of us have sort of phobias, don't we? Things that we don't like. Some people don't really like to drive over bridges, you know, that get wobbly, or some people don't like to to climb tall buildings or to sort of stand out and look over, you know, the cliff. They're afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of of flying commercial airline flights and you know when the the turbulence shakes and all of that, you think, man, I'm really not in control right now. And you know the the Pacific Ocean really seems cold and underneath my feet right now. Uh, you know, let me just share a couple of my phobias. You know, I, I I don't like snakes. I don't like lizards. I don't even like frogs, okay? Reptiles in general, I think they're part of the curse. I'm not sure what God had in mind. But it's worse because I don't like snakes, and my wife kind of does, you know. And so she, especially the non-poisonous variety, they just don't freak her out at all. So it's a good thing to be in Alaska because when you're in the woods, all that can happen to you is you could get eaten by a bear. But, you know, the cottonmouth isn't going to jump out and, and grab you. But, you know... We've been on trails in the lower 48 where the snake comes out, it's a big black snake or whatever, and Judy's like taking the stick and going, you know, come on, buddy, get off the trail. And I'm, I'm gone. I'm like 30 feet away looking at this event. My boys are kind of going, man, what? can't quite get my arms around that. But blood also freaks me out. Any other blood freak out type people, I, I don't like it. My kids, they bounce off each other at, you know, full pitch, and somebody's bleeding in the mouth, flying over there, screaming to death. I just kind of give them some space, about five minutes, maybe, ten. I mean, if they're not bleeding out, I'm just going to wait for the drama to, to you know, kind of subside, and then I might look. I, I don't know. Leave me as the babysitter, okay? That'll be good. All right, so, uh, but praying for God's will to be done is like that. We, we become vulnerable before God. It's like we're, we're going into something we're afraid of, typically, because we want to be in control And sort of relinquishing that control is what it means to pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I sort of want to open up that phrase by doing two things this morning. I want us to have the biblical perspective of what the will of God is in our minds. And then I want to look at Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, reconciling God's will in his life. So let's define the will of God, and then I will depict for you, from Scripture, Jesus' personal struggle to reconcile the will of God in his own life. So what is the will of God? How do you define it? It's defined in two ways. First of all, there is the secret will of God, and then there is the revealed will of God. You've got the will of God that is determined... The end and the beginning, I mean, it's just set by God's mind. Something that we can't see until it happens. That's the secret will of God. And then you've got the revealed will of God, which is the scripture. Some people call this God's demands, what he demands of us, his will. First of all, God's secret will. I think of verses like Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret Things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord. It's his sovereign will, what he's decreed. Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph, at the end of his life, after going through all that he did at the hands of his brothers... Some brothers who wanted to kill him, ultimately he was imprisoned. All this drama happened. They're coming begging later on before Joseph, who had been exalted to second in command over all of Egypt, probably the most powerful place in all of the world, one of the most powerful positions. They're hoping that Joseph won't kill them for what they did. And Joseph, in his mind, appeals to the secret will of God that he just saw unfolding in his life. He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Basically saying, look, God put me through all that he did so that I could be exalted over Egypt to help them through these famine years. And it reconciled God's will in his life and in his heart. Isaiah 46.10 is what we read at the top of the hour. Verse 9 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God. Listen to these phrases here. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. That's our God. He's the one who is declaring, verse 10, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's our God. He is outside of time and space. He is transcendent and his will will be done. That's who he is. He's much more than that, but he is that. He is the God who knows the end from the beginning and who set everything into motion. Ephesians 1.11 is where Paul is writing about how we are saved by God's sovereign grace. And he says, God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. So your salvation was part of his secret will. What he designed was for there to be a plan for you to be saved by his sovereign grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Not by ourselves, but by God's grace alone. James 4.15, turn there. This is a very practical section talking about the secret will of God. James chapter 4. This is a guy or a gal who says, look, I'm going to go to town here, and I'm going to set up shop, and we're going to make a lot of money that's going to protect us and take care of us. Right here, James is saying, look, all such boasting is arrogance, and sort of in our economic crisis that might be rebounding. I mean, we need to be people who ultimately say all of this is predetermined stuff that's part of God's secret will. It's something that we cannot control, and if we try to control it or even sort of arrogantly fill our chests with this idea that, you know what, this is going to happen or that. That's arrogance. That's boasting. It's not God's will. There are some people who like to postmark their statements with, Lord willing. You know, they they rebound out of a phrase like this and say, look, I'll be there at 3 o'clock, Lord willing. And I understand the sentiment behind that, but ultimately we need to have sort of this bedrock foundation of, of trust in God's will that controls all of our thinking. God's will will be done. All right, that's God's secret will. Here's God's revealed will. What is God's revealed will? It's the Bible. It's the word of God. It's black words frozen on white pages for us where we can sort of understand what God is demanding of us in our lives. It's the Bible. And I was thinking about Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine again because it in one verse, is putting together God's secret will and God's revealed will. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, and then in verse 29 at the end it says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, we've got secret things, but we also have revealed truths that guide us. I think so many times people get you know, sort of hung up on what is the will of God for my life? What should I do? And, you know, I'm just looking for the fuzzy, you know, to sort of break things open where I have the warm fuzzy in my heart and I know what to do. And when we're doing that, we're ignoring the fact that God has revealed so much for us in terms of giving us guidance through the truth. I mean, think about Jesus. He was led by the Holy Spirit to face Satan in the wilderness, right? He was led into that battlefield, and that's part of the the secret will of God, is God was moving the Son of God into that moment, and Jesus was responding to that secret will and, and God's direction, and then, as Jesus was tempted, he appealed to God's revealed will. That always blows my mind. Satan's saying, hey, turn these stones into bread, you're starving to death. And Jesus says, look, well, let me just appeal to Deuteronomy right now. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the humility of the Son of God who's saying, I can be guided in this moment from the word of God. And it's just applying the word of God in practical wisdom to know the will of God. There's several phrases in the New Testament that say this is the will of God. You know, that we would be pure in sanctification, holiness, that we would be saved and submissive and sanctified and that we would have a grateful heart. This is the will of God that you would suffer, that these things would happen. And as long as we are obeying the revealed will of God, then we should just sort of make our best decision in humility and watch God's secret will play out. And if we make a bad decision, then turn around and make a good decision and stay flexible in that. Jesus did. John 4, 34 says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's Jesus. He was walking in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, and he was obeying God's word as he did it. You know, there's also another category in I was meeting with the men earlier this week uh, at sort of a La Roma coffee shop setting in the morning, and we were talking about the will of God, which providentially came up this week in our study. Go figure. But anyway, I was uh, sort of studying that anyway, and that led us to this uh, Lord's Day. And I was talking about what God desires, what God's heart, how God's heart breaks for the world. And even though God's secret will isn't set up that everybody would be saved. Some will go to hell and some will go to heaven. God, at the same time, desires for all men to be saved. We find this in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That sentiment is echoed again in 1 Timothy 2, 4. Paul saying that Jesus Christ is the Savior, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And then 2 Peter 3, 9 Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is repentance. This is God's heart for the world. He he breaks for the world. And God's revealed will here shows us that God's heart is breaking for the whole world. So how do we put this together? How do we put together heaven's will and earth's will? Look again at Matthew chapter... 6 verse 10 your kingdom come and here it is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven i guess in some senses someone would say well god's secret will is in heaven and god's revealed will is on earth but it's a little bit more complicated than that you have facets of god's secret will that's in heaven and is playing out in real time on earth that we see once it happens right And then you've got God's revealed will that we're obeying on earth by God's grace that is also happening perfectly in heaven. So you've got both happening in both dimensions. Let me show you how this works. First of all, God's secret will. It was secret that there was going to be a fall and that mankind would be plunged into sin and then that there would be a flood and then there would be Prophets who would be prophesying that Jesus would come as the Messiah, and then Jesus came, and sort of God's redemptive historical plan has been playing out. And though we get hints of what's coming through prophets, it's God's secret will that's sort of working its way out in God's timetable. It's a version of God's secret will here on earth. And then we have God's revealed will that's happening in heaven. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 1. This is, I think, a great window into heaven to show how perfectly God's will is playing out in heaven and how angels are obeying the clear demands of God that are revealed to them. The angels in heaven are, are again, crying out to God that he is thrice holy. And here in Ezekiel 1, you have a picture of the four living creatures that are made up of having two wings they fly with, two wings where they cover themselves, and four faces. They have four faces, one that's a human face, verse 10, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Each face is to reflect and emanate God's glory back to himself. Because pictured here in Ezekiel's vision is God's throne room, and it is the most... Um, ...massive, extraordinary, electrifying light, laser light show that ever could be imagined. And that's going on. Thunder, lightning, flashes of light going from the throne... ...and, and there being this gleaming of barrel, these beautiful jewels that are sort of brilliantly on display... ...and then the angels, or the four living creatures, are moving before the throne... ...reflecting this thunderous glory back to the throne. So there's this exchange back and forth in the throne room of God... But what's underneath all of this brilliant exchange is obedience. Obedience. The angels are worshiping God perfectly. They're doing in heaven what we need to be doing on earth. They're extolling the glory of God, a human face reflecting the image of God, verse 10, the face of a lion that's reflecting perhaps uh, God's authority, and the face of an ox reflecting God's massive strength, and the face of an eagle, uh, again, reflecting God's majesty and glory. And it says throughout this chapter how the Angels are moving back and forth and to and fro, and they're always facing forward. Look at verse 12. And each went straight forward wherever the spirit would go. They went without turning as they went. I think it's the idea that the angels never want to be looking away from the glory of God because they always want to be reflecting it back to himself. And so the different face that's on the angel, whether it's eagle or lion, or ox or man is sort of emanating an attribute of God over and over to who he is. And then it gives this idea of wheels. What are the wheels? As verse 14 says the living creatures are darting to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I saw at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth. And then it says there are, verse 16, wheels and their construction. And then at the end of verse 16, it's a wheel within a wheel. What is that? I think it's the lightning that's, and light show that's happening around these angels that as they motor forward towards the glory of God and side to side, it looks like a wheel of light that's going like this and going like this, reflecting the glory of God. And it's as if every whim of God as he's on the throne where he's saying, come towards me is being obeyed perfectly. And the spirit is motoring these angels forward and side to side where they're always looking at the glory of God. Now, we know we don't serve God in that way. We're not, <laughs> we're not in glory yet. But we should want God's will in heaven to be part of our experience here on earth, to reflect that kind of obedience, that kind of love for God's glory. We're supposed to pray that God's name would be hallowed and that his kingdom would come. And really to, to want something like that, to want God's glory and to reflect his attributes is to rebel against our society. It's to be in a, a revolution against everything that the world is telling us to do. Uh, Mike Taylor earlier in the service, he said that when we pray, you know, we could be like those people who are little boys going up and ringing the doorbell and then running away. In other words, starting to pray and then getting distracted or, or doing it, you know, as a childish prank instead of really entering into fellowship with our God. The angels in heaven are so serious about God's glory that they are looking at the face of God. Matthew eighteen ten says that the angels are always seeking the face of the Father who is in heaven. They're wanting to obey every whim and desire that he would have. Any countenance change or shift in the face of God, their Father, is, is direct orders for them to obey. And in this context, Matthew 18, it's not causing a little one to stumble. And they want to respond to whatever God wants them to do in that situation. So how does all this help us pray? How do we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I think there's no better place to look at how to pray in this way than to look to Jesus and watch him do it. Look at Luke chapter 22. This gives us a clear window into what it looks like to pray your will be done. This is the most passionate prayer ever prayed and ever documented for us to read about. Jesus would have just observed Passover with his disciples and traveled sort of through the vineyards to the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that this is the night before he's going to the cross. And Jesus is struggling in his humanity to reconcile the fact that he's about to undergo God's full weight of wrath that's placed on him who has done no wrong. I don't think Jesus is kicking against the goads. I don't think he's bucking the system here. He's just crying out in weakness under the sovereign hand of God. Again, sovereignty should not put us to sleep. It should not ...causes us to go into a spiritual coma, it should enliven our prayers... ...because we are casting ourselves in vulnerability before our God. Matthew 26, 38, a parallel section to this account says... ...that Jesus said, my soul is troubled with sorrow even to the point of death. So he's trying to reconcile the revealed will of God. He knows it's God's will for him to go to the cross with God's secret will. How will this look? What will this feel like for me to go through something like this? And he's just wrestling. It says that he fell to the ground in prayer. R.C. Sproul, sort of getting into the mind of Jesus, put it this way. He said, it's as if Jesus is saying, what you have set before me is more ghastly than I can contemplate. Just ghastly. I can't go there. But Luke chapter 22 says... Verse 40, and when he came to the place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation, instructing the disciples with him. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. This is what he said. This echoes verse 10 of the Lord's Prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, look what happens. Jesus, at that point, is fully strengthened and enlivened and just, you know, says, All right, I did that. I gave it to God. It's in your hands. All things work together for the good, right? No, look at verse 43. This is where the passion cranks up. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Why does he need the angel? Because when you put yourself in that sort of vulnerability before your God... God is sending to Jesus at that point a means to strengthen him. And when we do that, we need God's strength all the more. We've reconciled to follow God's secret will and his revealed will. And now we need the energy of the Holy Spirit to make it through. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. The increase in Jesus' agony was due to a full realization of the will of God for him in his passion. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The sovereignty of God, what a blessed doctrine, what a scary doctrine. It's a dangerous doctrine. It's dangerous to pray, God, your will be done in my life. But it's also invigorating and it's it's comforting. Look how Jesus comes out and through this time, it says when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. The disciples being passive and Jesus being active, right? Under the sovereignty of God. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, Rise and pray. Obey the revealed will of God and rest in the secret will of God. Pray. And Jesus did, and he was buoyed up by his prayer time all the way to Golgotha. Obeying the revealed will of God on earth, it's rebellion against what our world tells us to do. It says sleep go to sleep. If you're sorrowful, if you're sorrowing, if, you're, if you can't make heads or tails of why things are happening to you, just go to sleep. Just check out. Or perhaps a hyper version of Christianity would say, look, trust in the sovereignty of God and then just forget about everything. But that's not the Bible's plan. The Bible's revealed will of God tells us to rest in the sovereignty of God and labor all the more in prayer because of the sovereignty of God. Jesus didn't run, he submitted. But how does this submission turn from raw submission where we just sort of bite down and submit to a glad submission, to a joyful submission? How does that work out? You know, there was a story in history, in the history of the Roman Empire, where someone bit down in a hard-hearted state over what was happening to him and his world. It's Julian, who was the Roman emperor, and he had sort of taken on as his mission to change Rome back to a pagan nation. You remember Constantine, the former ruler, had changed Rome through his leadership into a quote-unquote Christian nation. They were no longer doing their ancient customs and traditions, and they were not bowing down to the ancient gods of the pantheon. But it says that Julian, in his mission, became very bitter because at the end of his Rain he was mortally mortally ba- wounded in battle in the east he was dying and the historians tell how he lay bleeding to death and he took a handful of his own blood and tossed it into the air saying you have conquered o man of galilee that's raw submission it's like i'm dead i'm done i'm dying jesus you win You know, what a terrible way to be. We'd never be like that, right, when things happen to us. No, it's very easy to respond in this way. Bad things happen to us. We're going through rough times. We find out news that we'd rather not hear. We've got a choice. We can respond in glad submission, in humility, relinquishing our rights, submitting. Or we can become raw in our hearts and say, Ah. okay, you win. We don't want to be that way. We need to approach God by saying, look, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this or that. Your will be done. I was thinking of Mark 14 where it also portrays Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying um, desperate prayers to God for, for God to get him through. And in that context, it says that he approached God calling him Abba, calling God Papa. Who is the one who is sovereign? Who is the one who knows the end from the beginning? Who's the one that has planned everything out in your life according to his secret will? Your daddy. The one who loves you most of all. He's the one who's in the details of your situation and your circumstances. He loves you. This morning at breakfast, uh, I just was thinking about this idea when Owen came up to Judy, and Judy sort of swept him up in her arms and just said, wow, you know, God loves us like we love Owen. I mean, you know, it's a unique thought. You'd think we'd have gotten that thought with the first five, but it took six right (laughs) now. Anyway, but I mean, just him being in that infant stage where he's not really in the spanking years, you know, he's still in the, he gets away with it years, and he's one years old, one year old, and cute and cuddly, and can be stinky sometimes, but, but frankly, he gets a free pass, and so often we forget the fact that God is giving us that kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of support at every waking moment. We are so despicable in our hearts, and God is loving us, and we, we dare not sort of die the death of depression over our sin by forgetting the fact that God is loving us again and again with his grace, loving you lifting you up in his arms and caring for you with his grace. It's, as Kent Hughes put it, a kind violence. It's like this sort of energized love towards us. Something that sort of stood out to me along these lines, in terms of the will of God, was a story about an exotic bird. It was a bird um, that was part of a collection of birds that were um, caught and caged in South America and were being shipped across the sea to Europe to be sold and one of the birds got out of his cage, probably during a feeding time, and the crew was sort of trying to grab it, you know, and playing this sort of game, trying to grab the bird down in the hold, and then, you know, what would happen, the door opens a little bit, and the bird gets out, and all of a sudden, it's on the deck, and they're flying around trying to grab it, and ultimately, the bird just took off and flew away. It's like, free at last, free at last, you know, free as a bird, but, you know, the crew kind of Reconciled the fact that they lost and got back to work. And, but a few days later, they looked on the deck and they found that the bird had come back to the ship. It was now exhausted and bedraggled and near the point of death. It was where the bird's freedom had exhausted itself because he was threatened by his new environment in the Atlantic Ocean. There was no place for the bird to land. There was no place, there was no rainforest for it to enjoy. It was out in a hostile environment, and it had to come back to the ship. This writer says, we may live in rebellion against God, but our freedom is fatal. It is the freedom of the bird that was made for the rainforest trapped in the mid-Atlantic. You know we should really want the sovereignty of God in our lives. We should want boundaries. We want God's revealed will and we want his secret will, don't we? I was thinking about this in terms of Owen again and you know on sunny days I like to go in the backyard and we've got a nice backyard with some trees, some pretty big fir trees in the back and you can sort of let our children run free because the whole area is fenced in and, but we'll lose Owen sometimes in the backyard. He he puts on his camouflage, well, we put it on for him, his camo pajamas, and he's just gone, and you can't find him in the trees. You're kind of looking, where is Owen? You know, where is he? And I was looking at him, I was watching him through the trees, and he's just lost in this sort of world of playing, and he's playing with sticks, and playing with different things around him, and he's all by himself, and we're just watching him, and he's lost, and he could have been anywhere in the whole world, but he's He's out on his own, but he's in the protection of the fence. And the fence is a picture in my mind of the sovereignty of God. God's will is perfect, and it is a protecting element in our lives. And as long as we are living according to God's revealed will, we are living within God's perfect will, his protection for you and for me. So we shouldn't Respond with raw submission. We need to respond with gladness in our hearts. And pray, as hard it is, as it is to pray, in all vulnerability, God, your will be done right here in my life, in my world, with my friends, my relationships, my family, on my job, with my health. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May God give us grace to pray that prayer. Now, as we look to the Lord's table now, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And I would invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think the best way to apply scripture sometimes is to think about the gospel and to think about communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul gives us clear directions on observing the Lord's table. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Can we remember the cross now together? Let's bow in prayer and just meditate upon what Jesus did for you and me. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So take some time and pray and sort of seek God's face and reconcile yourself to his will in this time, and then we will observe communion. I'd like to invite the men to come forward now to wait on us to distribute the elements. The Bible says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Definitely not do that. Let's confess our sins and thrust ourselves upon the grace of God in this time. Let's pass the bread. Observing the Lord's table is a gift. It's our opportunity to obey and to remember. This is uh, a symbol of the body of Jesus Christ. It's an emblem, and it's a tangible way for us to, in a multi-sensory way, um, taste um, bread and think and remember that Jesus' body was given for you. Let's do that together now. As the men now will distribute the cup. I'm going to read a couple more verses from 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11:25 is where Jesus is saying in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, I'm so thankful, as I'm sure you are, that Jesus Christ, when he prayed in Gethsemane and sweated great drops of blood, he reconciled his will to his father's and said, Not my will, but your will be done. Aren't you glad that he did that, that he submitted all the way to the cross? And then he rose again. So this speaks to that victory, that victory of submission and the glory of resurrection. And I pray that we would live that submission out um, for Christ so that one day when he glorifies us, we will glorify him forever in heaven in the perfect will of God for all of eternity. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you for the Lord's table. We thank you for this morning of communion where we could think about the gospel and remember that your will is perfect. And I pray that each would walk in your will today and this week. Guard our tongues, guard our hearts, guard our lives. Let us um, kiss towards the sun with humble, holy worship. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to tell you that um, we have some food in the back. We each week are putting that out there so you'll stay and remain in fellowship together and get to know each other and talk about being vulnerable and having phobia sometimes people don't like to stay around in crowds and talk to people or meet somebody new for the first time but christianity is a bold faith and i just would ask you you know get out of your comfort zone and shake hands and meet and greet people during this time and be the family of god go in grace and peace